science and technology. Welcome to Steampunks. I'm your co-host, Emily Schock. And I'm Zachary Schock, your co-host, husband, and number one fan of Emily. How do we do this? <laughs> I forget. What's next in podcast? <laughs> um, I think it's a horse thing. Y'all, the holidays are rough. Yeah. Y'all. I got a baby Yoda cup. That was pretty cool. I also got a baby Yoda cup. <laughs> but <laughs> we apologize for being gone for so long. And to make up for it, I came with one of the coolest steampunks around, in my opinion. But I say that about all of them. But still. <laughs> They're the best. They're all so good. Who we doing this week, Zachary? Virginia Apgar. Yeah, we are. She saved the babies. Ooh. So many babies saved. At least three. You're not <laughs> wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of people who have given birth have heard the word Apgar before. It's used as a mnemonic device for a way to score babies right after they're born to make sure that they don't need some other kind of intervention. Is that kind of the, uh, like, spank him on the butt thing? N- no. <laughs> it's kind of like, uh, it is in response to the spanking on the butt thing not actually working at all. I guess. But the cool thing about Virginia is she did so much more than just this one really super cool, awesome thing. I'm going to tell you all about her. Woo. Virginia Apgar. Born in Westerfield, New Jersey on June 7th, 1909. Her family was very active both in sportsmanship and, like, doing things. (laughs) (laughs) And in her own words, they never sat down. That must have been tiring. So tiring. But at the same time, none of them ever really seemed to lose that energy. Virginia definitely had it her entire life. She was the youngest of three children of Charles Apgar and Helen May Apgar. Charles was an insurance executive, but in his free time, he was like an inventor. Hmm. Was, was there anything cool that huh? he in, was there anything cool he invented? Um, not in particular, but part of his tinkering was like building ham radios and stuff. At least it wasn't spam radios. <laughs> And what he did with his radio hobby is he picked up some German chatter and actually exposed... Himself. (laughs) No, accidentally exposed a German espionage ring. Ooh. So he became pretty famous for that. He was just like a citizen that showed up and was like, uh, (laughs) I'm hearing stuff. The family was very musical. They all played one instrument or the other. And Victoria, in particular, played the violin. Okay. In fact, she played in orchestras all through her school life and after and during her many travels 
when she was older, she would play with local chamber quartets and such. Ooh. <laughs> At one point, a friend of hers taught her how to make stringed instruments. Oh, wow. In the 1950s, they made two violins, a viola, and a cello, and they're still around today and are very expensive because they're very <laughs> famous for being made by Virginia Apgar. Were they used a lot together? Yes, because they're kept together right now, and sometimes uh, different string groups will come and play them. Nice. They stay at the, at the hospital where most of her career was. Hmm. Were there any particularly famous people to play it? No. <laughs> so she went through school, and by the end of high school, she knew she wanted to be a doctor. Uh, she was super good at science and super bad at home ec. <laughs> <laughs> so she knew she didn't want to just be like a homemaker or something more creative like that. Yeah. More, more traditionally creative, because she's pretty creative. Just going to sit at home doing nothing. <laughs> her friends, until the end, she never learned how to cook. Oh, no. They were like, yeah, no, her food was really bad. <laughs> yeah, that was probably like, what, 70s? When did she die? She was born in 1909. She died in the 70s. So already bad food. For just forever. <laughs> just. <laughs> Ugh. She graduated high school in 1925, and she went to Mount Holyoke College, where she majored in zoology. <laughs> you gotta start. You gotta start with something before you go into med. Yeah, and zoology is is a good uh, biology base, at least. That makes sense. I, I I feel like a lot of people do that. That's a common combination I've heard. So get ready for the stress headache that is Victoria Avgar's college life. Oh, good. It makes me anxious and sweaty reading it. <laughs> so on top of supporting herself with several part-time jobs, she paid for all of this herself. She was on seven sports teams. Oh, no. She reported for the college newspaper. <laughs> she acted in plays. I she thought most of this was going to be just, like, class scheduled. Mm -mm -mm -mm. But no, this... All extracurricular, she, all choices. Also, playing violin in the orchestra, obviously. <laughs> in in her college yearbook, the editor was just like, frankly, how does she do it? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think she did seven sports teams simultaneously, now that I'm thinking about it. It was probably seven sports teams throughout her time there. No, it was actually all all in the same game. It was like uh, <laughs> basketball. You had to throw the football through the basketball Field hoop. hockey, so it's all outside. You actually could hit the football with a baseball bat. <laughs> and there's a little bit of kickball, you know. You know, it's great. But regardless of her way too many activities, she excelled academically. Hmm. Top of her class, it was great. She graduated from Mount Holyoke in 1929, and she went and started her medical training at Columbia University's College of Physicians and Surgeons, which I'm going to call PNS from here on out, because mm. that's a long amount of time. She was one of only nine women in a class of 90 that year. <laughs> <laughs> Card stacked against her. So she got her MD in 1933, and she immediately started a surgical internship at the university hospital that was attached. Okay, yeah. A Presbyterian hospital. 
Oh, good. <laughs> like, that, that's what it was called. <laughs> she did great at her surgery training because she does great at everything <laughs> that she does. <laughs> but her mentor, uh, Dr. Alan Whipple, uh, was worried for her because it was in the middle of the Great Depression. All of his former female surgery interns could never make it. Like, they just couldn't get paid enough to survive. No. So they ended up dropping out of it. Understandable. And, you know, she's so good, you don't want her to leave because of money. Yeah. And on top of that, she had $4,000 in med school debt, which in now dollars is 80000 <laughs> So, like, a normal three years. That's so much money. But there was just no way that she would be able to pay those back and be paid horribly as a surgeon. So he encouraged her to go into anesthesiology. Anesthesiology, at that time, was a purely nurse-led occupation. They were not considered equal with the surgeon. They were still, like, had to listen to what he said and... You know, like, give her more, give her less, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And it wasn't like, you went through, like, a couple weeks of specialized training, and that was really it. Yeah, like, not to be offensive to nurses, but, like, I I feel like putting somebody unconscious with a gas should be held by somebody with a degree, you know. That was part of it was that as time went on, the methods of putting people under anesthesia became more and more complicated and sophisticated. So it became something that had to be like really rigorously trained for. So he encouraged her to go into that and she was like, "Mm, okay. (laughs) What what was the way they did anesthesiology like back Uh, then? um, Depending on how early you go, it might be as simple as like knock them out with ether or just have them get very drunk before you do something. But around this time it was probably ether, but in controlled dose. No. Putting under, I don't know if they had general anesthesia yet, but it was like coming along. She took his advice and trained for a year in the nurse anesthetist program. Y'all just going to have to hear my tongue go (laughs) this whole time. I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, so I lied when I said it was a few weeks. It was a year. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, in the scope of... Of med school, yeah. I guess. <laughs> she tried to get into doctor-focused programs first, but a lot of them were full or didn't accept women. Or if they did accept women, they had already reached like the minimum that they had to have, and they didn't want to take on any more. Old times were cool. Super great. So she did her year in the in the nurse program, and after that, she took two residency programs. One was headed by Ralph Waters in Wisconsin, and the other one was headed by Emery Rovenstein at New York's Bellevue Hospital. Ooh. So fancy training, getting in the mind of these early pioneers of putting people under and bringing them out safely. That's another big part of it. Yeah. It's easy to put someone under. <laughs> that, that, that was kind of my thought process yeah. of the uh, 
being more specialized because like yeah it's easy to make someone breathe a bunch of ether but to make them come out of it like safely especially when it's not ether it's very powerful drugs pumped right into their veins <laughs> <laughs> so she was now one of the most knowledgeable anesthesiologists in the country she came back to presbyterian and her old pal dr whipple and she became the first woman director at Presbyterian because she headed up the brand new division of anesthesia within the Department of Surgery. Well, I thought she was going to be getting real good at the violin and became a director. You know? Yeah, she just left <laughs> to become an orchestra director. <laughs> Surprise, immediate shift. Surprise. You'll see there are more surprises. <laughs> there. So as a head of this division, she was responsible for pretty much all of it. <laughs> she had to recruit and train residents. She had to teach medical students as they came through on rotation and had to coordinate all of the anesthesia work at the research hospital. So like wow. general surgery, emergency surgery, pediatric surgery, <laughs> all of it was on her. Jeez. Did she had did she have any time in the day? She somehow managed to do it. She she was described, you know those people and you talk to them, and they are just going a mile a minute, and they have everything planned out, and they're just like, oh, dear, how are you doing so great? And you, like, can't get a word in edgewise, but it's okay, because they're just, like, doing their thing. <laughs> they're leading their own conversation. Uh, yeah, and then at the end, you're like, wow, what just happened? <laughs> that was Virginia. She found the time. <laughs> she did that job wonderfully for 11 years, just helping new up-and-coming doctors in this very specialized field get good <laughs> and then go elsewhere to teach more people. How do you go about convincing hospitals that, like, hey, this thing you're already just having nurses do, pay more for it? At one point, it's just what everyone else is doing. It's got to start with one. Yeah. Like, oh, Columbia's doing it. Okay. Oh, New York's doing it. In 1949, the Division of Anesthesiology became its own department. And Virginia was like, cool, I'll be a department head. And they were like, nah, Dr. Emanuel Papper's gonna. Cool, thanks. <laughs> she was disappointed for like 30 seconds. And then she was appointed as the first female full professor at PNS, the professor of anesthesiology, because who else? <laughs> <laughs> and she actually found that she preferred not being on the admin side of things. Because she yeah. could go where she needed to be and find the, like, niche things that you don't see when you're looking at the big picture. Exactly. And that niche was obstetrical anesthesia. So, like, I'm having a baby, please numb me <laughs> anesthesia. <laughs> and this is when they're coming up, like, with the different, you know, sometimes they would just put a woman to sleep and then she'd wake up and have a baby. <laughs> sometimes they would just numb, like, the entire bottom half of your body well i guess that's what they do now but they did it in way less efficient ways than a epidural <laughs> this is when they're figuring that all out we'll stick 20 needles in you <laughs> here bite this <laughs> <laughs> she was especially interested however in how the different forms of anesthesia they were using affected the babies being born because she could tell that like you know when the woman was fully under babies acted this way or when they were natural, they reacted this way. So, you know, if one 
causes them to react less than the other, then that would be the preferred method, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it was the 50s, so infant mortality had gone down. It's not like, you know, the 1800s where it's like, (laughs) oh, you're six, bye. (laughs) But neonate mortality was still really high in that first 24 hours of life. Babies just weren't making it, and she wanted to make that better. And I will, Understandable. And I will tell you how she did it after this break. Do you like the Dresden Files novels, tabletop role-playing games, improv, adventure, or butt jokes? If not, I don't know if we can help you. Hi there, this is Michael, the host and game master for Green Mountain Mysteries, a Dresden Files RPG actual play podcast about four ersatz heroes fighting wizards and monsters in Burlington, Vermont. Come for the grand urban fantasy adventure full of diverse characters. Stay for the many butt jokes. Seriously, one of the players is playing a proctologist. It's just chef's kiss. You can listen to new episodes of Green Mountain Mysteries every Wednesday on the Pocket Podcast Network or wherever fine podcasts are sold. (laughs) What a great ad. Ah! I (laughs) fell back in. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we're falling falling from the alchemy lab. Ah! Why is it? Why is it upstairs? <laughs> <laughs> and we're back. <laughs> so we were talking about Virginia and how she was particularly interested in helping more babies survive the first twenty-four hours, and so eventually she came up with what is now known as the Apgar score. Hmm. It's a method of examination right after a baby's born. I, I think nowadays they do it at one minute and five minutes. And they look at the baby and they take a score on certain things. And depending on the final score, you know, the baby's like in perfect shape or needs help right now or somewhere in the middle. Interesting. She first came up with it. She was eating lunch with some residents in the cafeteria at Presbyterian. And they were just, you know, talking about various medical things, as I'm sure doctors do all the time. (laughs) I mean, probably. (laughs) Don't talk shop at the table. (laughs) And a resident asked her, how would one do a standard rapid assessment of a newborn's condition anyway? Like, how would we do it? And Virginia just goes... That's easy. You would just do this. And she grabs, like, you know, those little pyramids of paper that have a sign that say, like, please bust your trays Uh on on cafeteria tables. It was a little paper slip (laughs) telling them to bust their trays. She grabbed that and wrote on the other side. And she wrote down five points to check on a baby. Heart rate, respiration, muscle tone or activity, Reflex response to stimulation and color. So you want to check that their heart's beating as fast as it should. or And no faster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you want to make sure that they're breathing. You know, not because a lot of times before this, you know, a baby would... <gasps> and they'd go, okay, it's fine. But then it wouldn't take another breath after that. And no one <laughs> noticed because no one was looking at the baby. Yeah. <laughs> 
muscle tone or activity. So, like, you know, are they just super frail? Is he swole? Are they... <laughs> <laughs> Dang, this baby's just swole. That was baby flexing. <laughs> or, you know, on the other end, where they couldn't really move their limbs at all because they didn't have the strength to. Mm. Reflex response to stimulation. So, like, if you pinch it, does it go, eh? Or if you spank it, I did it. I mean, you could, but I think they just poke it with, like, a little needle like a like a diabetes tiny little needle and color like are they pink are they blue are just their toes blue how are they doing getting oxygen to places okay so the scoring was zero one two zero being bad help now ten being cool everything's cool mm-hmm. yeah so she gave this information to her team and they all used the scoring method with the births they assisted for 1,021 babies born a Presbyterian that year. And they were able to put together a report that showed a ton of correlations between the kind of anesthesia the mom had, how they were delivered, you know, uh, vaginal versus C-section. Yeah. Various things like that. So which one uh, won Best in Show? <laughs> I'm honestly not sure because, I mean, I, I assume it's probably the one that still exists to this day. The epidural or natural. Oh, no, I meant the, the kids because scoring. <laughs> well, they're all like 100 now, so... <laughs> They also found out that the most efficient time to look at the baby to, like, get the most correct answers... Was 12.57. Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Was one minute after birth. And like I said, places now do one minute and five minutes to make sure there's no deterioration. Smart. And she also suggested that somebody other than the attending physician do the scoring... Because she found that when the attending physician did it, they were like, "Ah, oh, yes, this baby I delivered perfectly is great. <laughs> no, they want to do that. <laughs> so, like, all their kids would get nines and tens. When, and when other people looked at the same baby, they were like sixes and sevens. <laughs> which, funny, but also dangerous for babies. Yeah. It didn't start out as a mnemonic device, though. That happened in, like, the 70s. One of her friends called her and was like oh one of my students came up with this today and she loved it so they took her name and they assigned it to each of the five points so a appearance color p pulse for the heart rate g grimace for the me big purple guy does Grimace from McDonald's show up in the <laughs> delivery room and proclaim the birth valid? Two. Two, two, two. Two, two. Always Grimace. He's in there somewhere, ladies. Oh, no. no. Uh-uh. Hey, well, guys. I made it back. <laughs> oh, okay. The second A for activity, the muscle tone, and the movement. And R for respiration. That one could stay the same. So it was the APGAR score. Before it was just like the baby testing right after birth score or whatever. A little wordy. (laughs) By the late 1950s, APGAR herself had attended over 17,000 births. 
And as she refined the scoring system, she came across a bunch of birth defects that she also found correlations to. Like, oh, this mom took this medication and her baby didn't have all of its toes. And then the same thing happened to this woman who took the same medication. It was sort of putting two and two together that way as well. In 1958, she took a sabbatical from work and went back to school to get her master's of public health. Because, okay, you're like in your 40s, very successful in your field. Let's add a master's degree on it. I mean. Because of course she did. Yeah. She first went because she wanted to use the statistics to help with her work at Columbia, at the Presbyterian. But as she became more interested in the birth defects and how to prevent them and make them more manageable, if you can't prevent them, uh, drew the attention of the National Foundation March of Dimes. Oh. They started out advocating for children affected with polio. But at this point, the vaccine had been invented and polio was all but gone. Mm-hmm. Yay, vaccines! Yeah! Yay. And so they were looking for more ways to help sick kids, you know, help kids that needed medical attention. And they started their birth defect program. And they started it by coming to Virginia and saying, hey, do you want to be director of this birth defect program? And she was like, yes, please. <laughs> Is it something for me to do? Yes. I can do that. Perfect and great. She got her master's in 1959 and immediately after began her position as the head of the new division of congenital malformations at the National Foundation. Again, a little wordy. (laughs) And her people skills really came into play here. She was a great teacher, by the way. I don't know if I explicitly said that. Students loved her. She was engaging. She carried around a penknife <laughs> at all times because ain't nobody but nobody going to stop breathing on me. <laughs> so she was like ready to do an emergency trach at any time. Go. <laughs> yeah. She just... required three textbooks because she gets through each of them in one. <laughs> you better session. pay attention. No. Nah, she... <laughs> nah. But then in this position, she could go directly to the families that were affected with these things she had become so intrigued about. She traveled thousands of miles across the whole country uh, to a variety of audiences. She talked about the importance of early detection of these defects and the need for more research into them. She also worked at the National Foundation for a lot longer after that, eventually getting up to Director of Basic Medical Research. Hmm. From 67 to 68. And then vice president for medical affairs from 71 to 74. So she really climbed the ranks there and did a lot of really important work. In 1972, she published a book called Is My Baby Alright? And it just answered a lot of common questions and talked about things to avoid if you want to have a healthy, good pregnancy. And, you know, sort of like a... I'm assuming that when you're pregnant, you're very much like should stay away from WebMD because you're gonna find everything scary. Yeah. Yeah, don't... (laughs) Don't look into the thing that just says you have 
six cancers. Yes, and this was like the exact opposite of it. And of course, it was just a huge hit because everything she does is good. (laughs) And also keep in mind that while doing all of this, all the way back to the score even, she was gardening, she was fly fishing, she was golfing. She was collecting stamps. She was getting her pilot's license. Again, all at the same time. Yep. (laughs) Throughout her life, she published over 60 scientific papers, nearly uncountable short essays (laughs) that got published, too. She received all the awards. She got honorary doctorates from Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania and Mount Holyoke. She got the Elizabeth Blackwell Award from the American Medical Women's Association. (laughs) She got the Distinguished Service Award from the American Society of Anesthesiologists. Uh, Yeah, I mean. (laughs) Because she invented it. (laughs) (laughs) The Alumni Gold Medal for Distinguished Achievement from PNS because she made it there. (laughs) (laughs) The Ralph M. Waters Award from the American Society of Anesthesiologists. He was one of the teachers she had at the residencies way back in the first half. (laughs) Years ago. And she was elected Woman of the Year in Science by the Ladies' Home Journal, so there. (laughs) And she never retired. She just worked and played and did all of her things all the way up until, like, six months before the end. Oh, jeez. When she had a progressive liver disease, so eventually it did kind of slow her down, but even then, just barely. <laughs> and I she can only play six sports today. Oh no! So she kept on keeping on, and then she died on August seventh, nineteen seventy four, at the hospital where she spent most of her career. <laughs> <laughs> and she has just been a medical legend since then. She got a stamp, a commemorative stamp, in nineteen ninety four, and was inducted to the National Women's Hall of Fame in nineteen ninety five. And every day she saves little babies. Little tiny babies. The teeniest. So that's Virginia Apgar, baby savior. Inventor of anesthesiology, basically, except for the one that actually invented it. It's fine. Public health servant. Violin player. Seven sportser. And a really nice lady. And a really nice lady. We're a part of the Pocket Podcast Network, bringing quality content right to your pocket. Please check out the other shows on the network. We have a brand new one that I'm very excited about. It's called Green Mountain Mysteries. You should check them out. They're very cool. We got other shows like No Dice Came Back and Ghoul Tanks going strong now. Check them all out. Yeah. Follow us at Steampunk Spot on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can follow me personally at shockn underscore awesome. Thanks to the band The Crips for the use of their song, Marie Curie, for our intro and outro. I'm Emily. And I'm Zach. And keep flying, you beautiful, majestic, steam-powered horses. Marie, Marie, Marie Curie, she's a double scientist, I wanna be. Pocket Podcast Network. Quality programming right to your pocket.